When Aaron and I and our family moved to Appleton a dozen years ago to plant a church, uh, that was what we were called to do from the Wisconsin Presbytery, we hardly knew anyone in the area. And one of the things that I did as I starting to plant this church is I went out to individuals in the valley asking them questions. And uh, it's about 40 plus people that I just contacted and said, hey, I was wondering if I could to get to know you, get to know the area, trying to figure out what Appleton's all about, the Fox Cities are all about. Got together with the mayor, Lisa King, who sold us this building, uh, leaders in the Hmong community, executives from uh, the PAC, uh, Bill Lenz, a Catholic priest, leaders of AA in the Valley. I got together with Pete Hetland, who was part of our church after that meeting. Got together with the college professors. And all these people that I got together with them asked the same seven different questions. Questions about the Valley, about church, all those things. But the last question I asked each of these individuals was this. Who is Jesus and what is his significance to you? The answers were fascinating. What I found most fascinating was this. No one out of all the people that I interviewed had anything negative to say about Jesus. Some of them, in answering that question, they would go back, feels like their catechism days. Right? They knew the answers right away. Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, born of the Virgin Mary. Some would say things like this. Jesus is a great philosopher who brought about the idea that it is better to be loving and good than cruel and vengeful. Everyone had an opinion of who Jesus is through their experiences, what they wanted him to be, what they remembered from Sunday school. It does beg the question, is Jesus simply something subjective? Something that we just want him to be. See, something that is just saying the right terms about him. See, the beauty as we go through the book of Mark this winter and spring is we get to see Jesus. Quick, to the point, fast action. That is this book of Mark. I encourage you, it only will take you an hour and a half to read through the whole book. I encourage you to take some time. Read through the book of Mark. As we go through the book of Mark this winter and spring, maybe we can see who he is. We can go to the source. And in that, in investigating that and reading that, is it the same Jesus that we've created in our minds? We'll see, as we go through the book of Mark, how do people react to who this Jesus is? In their reaction, is it similar to our reaction to Jesus? Do we just mimic them in showing maybe wrong perceptions of who Jesus is? Or maybe the right perspective of who he is? I guess I'm going to ask you the same question I asked those 40 plus people as I moved here to Appleton. Who is Jesus 
And what is his significance in your life? Well, we're going to see six characters in these first 15 verses of Mark that answer this question. Let's see what they say about Jesus. Mark chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. Please pay attention as we look to God's word. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days, being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested... Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The word of the Lord. Well, you come to the right time as we start the book of Mark this winter and this spring, and it's really a book on overdrive. We see no genealogy. No birth stories you might see in Matthew or Luke. We get to his ministry right away. And it's going to be fast moving all the way through. And we see in this passage, verses 1 through 15, four buzzwords that we maybe have heard time and time again. But they are such loaded words of meaning. The ones I see here specifically are the gospel, Christ, repentance, and the kingdom of God. Let's start with the gospel. See, the book of Mark is credited to Peter's companion, many say his secretary, Mark, written in Rome to people that were living in the Roman world, both Jews that were part of the diaspora, meaning taken out of Jerusalem, and also for Gentiles in that area. Mark and Jesus lived in this Roman world. And they called this message the gospel, a Greek word used often in Roman culture that really means eugenilon, you and angelon, meaning means a good message, you, good, angelon, messenger. And it's just the way we say the good news. But see, it is a Roman kind of understanding See, Roman messengers would go and share the good news about a battle being won 
an emperor being born, the ascension of a king. One of these, written in the first century B.C., said this about Augustus. It is a day which we may justly count as equivalent to the beginning of everything. And whereas the birthday of the god, Augustus, was the beginning for the world of the glad tidings that have come to men through him. You see, this is the good news that they talked about, was proclaimed. And this declaration that was proclaimed about kings being born or ascending the throne, they elicited a response of the audience. So, Augustus is the king, is the emperor. What's the response? The people in Rome should obey him. See, in Mark saying the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, he's saying here is a message that elicits a response. This is not some legend. Here's some that one that was born, a real king that deserves people to worship him. We see in the messengers that talk about who Jesus is, these six different people that tell the character of Jesus. One, Isaiah, right? Isaiah, this Old Testament prophet, says there's one that will prepare the way for this king, Messiah, to come. And again, it's leading to the idea that it's John the Baptist, right? And John the Baptist says, I am preparing the way to this king whose sandals I'm not even worthy to untie. This is how great this good news, this angelon, this evangelism is to the world. I think I'm readily aware that when I read the Bible and say these kind of messages, some of us throw it out right away. I did not grow up going to Christian school or anything like that. When I read the Bible in classes, it was read as literature. Also, when I went to undergraduate and took um, New Testament classes again, it was read as literature. Something to analyze, something to look at. And a lot of my teachers in high school and college had this understanding of the Bible that the Bible didn't come together until, again, the Roman Empire, Empire basically came to believe in Jesus. When Constantinople became a Christian, that is when all of this became okay and appropriate. And they just basically take all these voices about who Jesus was that was developed over 400 years, and the most vocal voices and most powerful voices won out the day, and that's what you found in the Gospel and in the New Testament. They would say, look at the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Truth, these Gnostic Gospels, right? They were in line with the other Gospels, and one won out and the other one's lost, no one knows the true story of who Jesus is. We're just piecing it together and one one out and that's what we get in the church today. That was what was taught to me in high school and in college. Now, hear me. Some of you might have that understanding of the Bible too and are very skeptical about God's Word. It's just a bunch of people making up stuff about this person of Jesus. I do not want to belittle your opinion or be trite about it. I just want to give an opposing view to you. A view that you might hold, that I just want to put something next to it. I don't want to be smug about your view, 
or not do it justice. But I want to make the argument to you today that this gospel is historically reliable and true. So much of the gospel was written 30 years after Christ. How do we know that? Well, one way we know that is there's no mention of the destruction of the temple in 70 AD that would have kind of enveloped what was going on in the Palestinian region at that time. And so what was happening there is that um, that is not mentioned is written before it. Also, there is this pressure of the church to document what they knew about Jesus. And some of the earliest manuscripts of the first century are of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We also see that in the early church, some of the creeds that are written just 10 to 15 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, that we see that these are already being taught about who Jesus is, his Christology, meaning the theology of Jesus, is written very, very shortly after Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension. And these are being taught in the church at that time. Also, the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they give you names of people that lived in that time, eyewitnesses of what Jesus has done. So if you were there, you could talk to these people and see if this message is true. Also, you see in the gospel, specifically in the book of Mark, they have an unflattering picture of the followers of Jesus, the disciples. If the disciples were trying to put together some propaganda to lift themselves up, you would have thought they maybe to write something nice about themselves, but instead they're very harsh on themselves. The Gnostic Gospels, maybe some of you have read the Da Vinci Code. I know that was really popular back in the day. I might be dating myself nowadays. But the Da Vinci Code also held this kind of idea that the Gospels or the Bible just came together and it just took the Gnostic Gospels and threw it out. One group won, the other group lost, and basically we have this one message of Jesus and not the other message. The truth is, the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Truth, these Gnostic Gospels were not written until the second century. One famous historian says this, the Gnostic Gospels are no more a challenge to the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to American democracy. See, that was the difference between the 18th century revolution and then the 19th century. And that's the kind of difference that's seen between the Gospels being written, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and then the Gnostic Gospels being written much, much later. Even by 160, Arrhenius, the historian that Christians and non-Christians agree in, said there were already four clear Gospels about who Jesus was. I say these things because I know some of us, when we look at who Jesus is, we say, this is not reliable, I can't do that. I can create Jesus on my own terms because there is nothing that tells us who Jesus actually is. I just want to make the argument to you that here is historical reliability of who Jesus is and what he did on earth. Just want to you think through that. You might be skeptical. You might be a doubter. I just want to encourage you. It's okay to even doubt your doubts. Do that. 
For some reason, God has you here this morning. And if you have questions about that, I would love to talk to you about that. And if you have friends that have those same objections, I hear it over and over again. This is just something written by men, made up about who Jesus is. You might have friends or neighbors or family members that say that. I would encourage you to let them see what the true reliability of the scriptures and the gospels are. Okay, there you go. Is that helpful for you guys? So to hopefully see who is Jesus. Again, he's written to a Roman audience that lived in Rome and saw the direct power of the Roman emperor. That's what Mark is writing to. And Mark is arguing there is a man that came from Israel, a nation you guys control, that died by your method of humiliation, the cross, that is actually the king. And you should follow his good news, this gospel message that has happened. So one, the gospel. Two, another loader word is Christ, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, I grew up in the church, and some reason I thought that Christ was actually Jesus' last name. That's kind of how it goes when you grow up, like, Jesus, last name is Christ. No, that's not what it means, just so you know. It's not Jesus' last name. Christ means something. It means anointed one, one appointed by God to rule. It's a magisterial name. You see that magisterium is testified by Jesus' baptism. You see the Father and the Spirit saying, here is my beloved Son. It's testifying to here is the anointed one. As we read the book of Daniel, we saw that Daniel was special too. Daniel was ministered to by angels. He fasted. Daniel was called the loved one. We saw that he was around beasts. That kind of message carries on here to the Gospels. That here, Jesus is ministered by angels. He fasts. He is called the beloved one, right? The beloved son. And he is being shown as one greater than Daniel. Now, it would be so backwards for Jews and Gentiles to believe that anointed one came from Israel and was murdered. This is what some people in that time said about this good news, the idea of Jesus being the Christ. But this is your so-called Christ anointed one. He is without honor and glory, so that He has even fallen into the uttermost curse that is in the law of God, for he was crucified. It would be like calling a death row inmate Mr. President. See, this message, the idea that this Jesus is the anointed when the Christ would just rub against people such in a hard way. There's a book that's gotten a lot of popularity over the past seven years, especially because of our current divisive climate in America. It's a book written by Jonathan Haidt. It's called The Righteous Mind. And what he's trying to do is why do people make the political and moral choices that they do? And why is there so much division in America? He's not a Christian. He's an atheist, a secularist. And he uses um, 
kind of naturalism to make the arguments that he does. But this is what he finds. That when people make moral choices, they make choices based on appearance and reputation more than some simple higher principles or morals. And he shows case after case where people, just based on what others do around them or the influence by others around them, they make the choices that they do, not simply on some higher moral plane. And as we go through the book of Mark, you're going to see people come and go with Jesus. You're going to see crowds formed, you're going to see them come, and you're going to see them go. You're going to see disciples come, and you're going to see them go. You're going to see people say, he's amazing, and then people say, he's the worst. It happens over and over again. And many people are going, what can he do for me? I'm going to argue to you this, that Jesus lived a way we could not or do not want to live. That in fact, his message of being the anointed one has power because he did something none of us want to do ourselves. He is sent by God in God's image, simply not in our image. See, when I interview people about who Jesus is when I came to the valley, this is, I think, many times our expectation of Jesus. We think this. We think he's a moral example. He's someone I should emulate. And many times when people talk about Jesus, they start with themselves. How can I be like him? How can I gather wisdom from him? How can I do what he's called me to do? And here's what I would argue. We do not want to or cannot live the way Jesus did apart from him working in our lives. The reason that he is the anointed one, the reason that he is the Christ, is because he is the Son of God. And he lives a way that we cannot live. That's what makes him unique. That's what makes him different. So when we ask the question, who is Jesus? We have to understand he did something that no one in humanity could do. And when you start with that, that elicits a response from us. And you see that in the people that talk about Jesus. John the Baptist prepared the way. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And then you see when Jesus gives his first message in Mark, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Both of them are saying, you must turn. 180 and be totally different. This is a radical message. John the Baptist is saying your ancestry is not enough. It's not enough simply Jew to be in God's favor. There has to be complete turnaround and change. And this is the message of 
the gospel. I know when some of us hear the word repentance, we kind of get flush and it's kind of a hard word to hear. But I think repentance is more than just the idea of getting rid of the big sins. Again, it's the idea of living a totally new life, total change. And then living under that change continuously. I love what Martin Luther says about repentance. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, He willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. One of constantly turning from ourselves and going to Jesus. Some of you might say, how is this good news? How is this message good for us? The last thing. The kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus says about his ministry. This time is fulfilled in the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God is the idea of a dominion and a reign. Isaiah said it to the Jews. A king would bring hope. There would be a Messiah that would come. Now that was good news for Isaiah, good news in the book of Daniel, for a nation that was exiled, that was oppressed by other places, that they wanted a kingdom to come. They wanted a king that would rule rightly, with peace and security and life. And that is what they were longing for. And here Jesus says, the kingdom of God is at hand. Arguing that he is the one that ushers in this kingdom. And that he is the king. I've said this before, I'll say it again. In a nation that does not have a king, or the idea of a sovereign, this kind of thinking can be a little weird to us. But I would argue that we have kings and ideas of kings all over the place. I mean, we have the king of the NBA, right? LeBron James, right? We have a king of rock, right? Elvis Presley. A king of pop, Michael Jackson. Many of us maybe put signs over certain rooms in our house. I'm the king of this man cave, right? I mean, what what does Burger King say to us? Have it your way, you rule, right? This kingly message in sovereignty and rule is everywhere. And we create our own kingdoms. We can be kings ourselves that we can escape and do it our way, our own life. I love the honesty sometimes in Lord of the Rings. You know, when Frodo is with the elves in Galadriel, right? And he has the ring, right? The, the picture of the ring is being able to rule and, write, and be a king or a queen. And he offers the ring to Galadriel. You remember what she says? You will give me this ring freely. In the place of the dark lord, you will set up a queen. And I shall not be dark, but beautiful and terrible as the morning and the night. Fair as the sea and the sun and the snow upon the mountain. 
stronger than the foundations of the earth, and all shall love me and despair. What will our kingdoms bring? We offer our brokenness. But what can they do for us as broken humanity if we set up our own kingdoms? Jesus is offering a different reign. He's offering a different message. Here is the anointed one. Here is the Son of God. Here is the King. How is Jesus' kingdom any different? How is it good news to a broken world? Philip Yancey is an author and speaker. For some reason, he was called upon many, many times after a lot of the mass shootings in America, Columbine, mass shooting in Aurora, in Newtown. He was called to, to speak and, and talk to people that were grieving. It's fascinating, a lot of these mass murders happened in the time of Christmas or Easter in the time between them. And when he would talk to these different individuals that face such tragedy and loss. Often the people would say that this event had ruined Christmas for them and any Christmas going forward or ruined Easter for them or any Easter going forward. And this is what Philip Yancey said to these people. If Easter is just a culture holiday with Easter bunnies and candy and eggs, yes, it probably has been ruined. But if Easter is about a king of this world taking on the ugliness, injustice of this kingdom and defeating it, then it's good news. This message of Mark and elicits a response from us. Who is Jesus? What is his significance? This is the argument that I think Mark is making. His kingdom has come. Turn to Christ the King. Repent and believe the good news.